Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1. Zephaniah, chapter 1. If you'll remember, the easiest way to get there, start in Matthew, go back four books, you'll be there in no time. Zephaniah, chapter 1. We are continuing to make our way through this book where we see intermingled throughout the book, but especially between the first three and a half chapters versus the last half of chapter 3, this contrast between what's going to happen to the nations, to the people of Judah, in terms of facing judgment, and also what's going to happen in terms of them receiving mercy and grace. Now, as I said, we see a little bit of this intermingled throughout the book, but by and large, the first part of the book is dealing with the judgments that are to come upon the nation of Judah for their sin and the nations as a whole for their sin. And then also, it will be matched by calls for repentance and promises of grace to come. We are this morning picking up where we left off last week in verse 7, and we're going to read together down to verse 18. Zephaniah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, Zephaniah is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we read here beginning in verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guest. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. 
A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's go to the Lord again. Father, we see in Your Word, we see in Your Law, we see all throughout the prophets, even when we come to the New Testament, we see in the preaching of Jesus, in the preaching of the apostles and their writings, that You are a God who cannot look upon sin with indifference. You cannot merely overlook it and dismiss it as if it is no thing at all. But you are a just and holy God. You are a God who created all things to be good, and man rebelled against you and brought sin into the world, and thus your wrath. And as you raised up your servant Zephaniah to preach your word, In the days of Josiah, you gave him a word of judgment to proclaim against all of the ungodliness among your people, Judah. And you gave him a word to proclaim to all the nations who walked in sin that a day would come when you would bring judgments upon the whole world. That it would come against Judah in the days of the Babylonian exile, but that it would also come for all the nations in the final day of judgment. And you proclaimed these warnings long ago so that we, who have come thousands of years later, we also would heed these warnings and repent of our sin. Lord, that we would recognize the reality that sin must be punished. And that in seeing the coming day of judgment, we would flee from our sin and turn to the only One who will be merciful and gracious, which is You Yourself. And that You have made a provision for all sinners who turn now before the day of wrath comes. You have made provision that You will not only forgive them of their sin, but in an even more stunning way, you will make them heirs of the kingdom to come. So Father, I pray for our time this morning. I pray that we would heed these warnings. That they would awaken us if we are holding on to any sin. That we would be a people who would be quick to repent and turn to Christ for salvation. I ask this all in Jesus' name. One of the things that 
sometimes hear from secular materialists, atheists, as a justification for their unbelief is that God has not given them enough evidence to believe. Perhaps you've heard that before. Perhaps you've had conversations with atheists before where something like that is said. God has not given me enough evidence to believe. If He would but show Himself, if He would in essence dwell with man now, and of course He he must reveal Himself in some great demonstration of power to every single subsequent generation as well. If God would do this, if He would do these things and give me evidence of His existence, a particular kind of evidence, of course, that I deem worthy, then I would believe. Then I would have a reasonable reason to believe. But until He does this, until He gives me what I require, I will never believe. And then, sometimes in their pride, they will go so far as to say that if there is a judgment, then on that day of judgment, they will stand before God and say that very same thing to Him. God, you did not give me enough evidence to believe in you, to trust you, to obey your word. I'm always a little bewildered when I hear statements like this, and for a variety of reasons. One is just the assumption of pure, untainted objectivity that man supposedly has, as if as long as he sees something, no matter how much his heart may be raging against it, as long as he sees something, he'll believe. He'll be convinced whatever he sees. And yet I think we know just from all of the confusion that exists around the observable biological facts differentiating men from women that this is certainly not the case. That your eyes can be telling you something and yet your heart rages against it. Man can easily reject what he sees with his own eyes. But even beyond this, we see a multitude of examples all throughout Scripture of men seeing the presence of God revealed before their very eyes, and yet they still do not believe. They still harden their hearts. Virtually the whole nation of Israel saw the glory of God at Mount Sinai. They saw Him working in signs and wonders in the wilderness, and yet because of their hardened and idolatrous hearts, they built an idol for themselves and called that God. They saw, and yet their hearts did not believe. Many Jews saw Jesus 
raise Lazarus from the dead. A clear sign about who he was. And yet, some of them still plotted with the Pharisees to have him killed. You would think, if there is something that can convince a man demanding visual evidence, seeing someone dead for four days now arise and come out of the tomb would convince you of number one, the existence of God, and number two, that Jesus is who He said He was. But that wasn't enough. They had seen, and yet they still did not believe. There are all kinds of examples from Scripture, from history, and even from the present day that we could point to that pull the rug out from those claims. And if we would just let's see, then we believe. But even more importantly, for our purposes this morning, the reality of facing God's judgment will be very, very different than is often assumed. When judgment comes against someone, or even when it comes against an entire people and nation, the judgment is based on clear examples of evil that have no defense at all. The indisputable evidence has already been amassed, in other words. It's already been gathered. And the judgment is God executing His righteous wrath against the guilty. There is no opportunity to plead a case. This is not the American law court system where you have a defense attorney and you get to argue the reasons why you're not actually guilty. There is no opportunity to plead a case because God already knows the depths of the human heart. He knows the intentions of the mind. And He knows every single act that has ever been done. And so when the judgment comes, there will be nothing that can be said against it. When it comes, every mouth will be This is actually what we see happening in our passage from Zephaniah this morning. The passage begins, you'll notice in verse 7, be silent before the Lord. Quiet. There is nothing to be said before the Lord. And the reason why is then given. For the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is a phrase that has a variety of uses throughout Scripture. Most often, it refers to the time when God's wrath is poured out. And this can be with reference to a national destruction that was prophesied to come, so to historical events that have already taken places, judgments that had come upon nations already in times past, 
Or it can refer to the final day of judgment when God judges all sin and evil once for all. Here in our passage, it refers both to the coming day when Judah will face God's wrath in the form of Babylonian exile. The day in which all of the curses of the Mosaic law would be brought against the covenant breakers of the nation of Judah. And it also refers at the end of the passage to the final judgment that is coming upon all people of the earth. But the point is that when this judgment comes, when the day of the Lord arrives, there will be no one who can utter a word against God's judgments. No one will be able to stand before Him and accuse God of doing evil. No one will be able to say that His judgments and His works are unrighteous. No one will be able to give a justifiable defense because all of their sins will be laid bare. All of the things that they thought were hidden will then be disclosed. And so Zephaniah, as he proclaims the message about the coming day of the Lord, he says to all, he says to the nation of Judah, and he says to all mankind, be silent before the Lord. There are no words that can be said in the day of the Lord. Now, as the passage continues, we see more details about what this day of the Lord is going to entail. And as I said just a moment ago, we find in the passage that the day of the Lord here has two references. One is in verses 7-13, to 13, where Zephaniah is speaking about the day of the Lord that is soon coming against Judah. And then in verses 14-18, to 18, he speaks of the day of the Lord that is coming against the whole world. And I want to consider both of these in turn together this morning. So first of all, let's look together at the day of the Lord that was approaching the nation of Judah. Zephaniah begins again in verse 7 with the warning, the, the call to be silent. And as the verse continues, he says that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated His guests. Now, if you remember from last week in verses 2-3, to Zephaniah there had alluded to the Noahic covenant and the days of Noah and the flood. And he spoke of a coming universal judgment against all mankind that would effectively reverse the creation. Much like the flood brought about a reversal of creation and submerged the entire world back under the formless and void waters of the world. Here in verse 7, the preparation of a sacrifice alludes to the covenant-making process. Did you see in 
many places of Scripture, but of course one of the first places is in, is in Genesis 15 where Abraham and, and God enter into a covenant together and the Lord orders Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. There's an allusion to that covenant-making sacrifice process here. And then further down in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 15-16, to 16, the day of the Lord that is coming is coming as a day of darkness and gloom and a day of clouds and thick darkness and a trumpet blast. And, and this itself alludes to the appearance of God in Mount Sinai. In other words, this coming day of the Lord is the day when the Lord Himself comes as the covenant enforcer. He is coming particularly to bring the curses of the covenant. He comes as the One who is going to execute His vengeance against all those who have violated His various covenants. And in the case of Judah, they had violated the Mosaic covenant. And so God determines now to bring the curses of that covenant, some of which we read from Deuteronomy 28 earlier. He is now bringing those curses upon them. Their sins, we know from the Old Testament, had, had always needed some sort of atonement. They needed an atoning sacrifice. Their sin, as all sin, must be punished. It, it requires the punishment of death and eternal death. And under the Mosaic Covenant, of course, an entire sacrificial system had been set up by which the wrath of God against them could be atoned for and could be averted. But here in Zephaniah, God is saying that the nation itself is going to be the sacrifice. There's no longer an atonement for them. They are the ones who now are going to be cut in half. And it is going to be their very blood that is spilled on the altar. Judah is going to come under God's wrath because Judah had broken His covenant. And God says that He is consecrating guests to participate, to feast on the sacrifice. And this could just refer to the animals of the land that will feast upon the people of Judah when the destruction comes. But more likely, the guest here refers to the nation of Babylon which God was already raising up to be the instruments of His judgment. And who would be the very nation who would destroy the nation of Judah? Then, when we come to verses 8-13, to God describes the reasons for the coming judgment and the results that will come about. He singles out here three groups in particular. One is the corrupt government leaders of the nation of Judah. And the second group is the corrupt religious leaders that permeated the, the nation of Judah. And then third, he singles out all indifferent sinners among the people of Judah. 
So in verse 8, the government leaders and the royal house is singled out in particular. Notice with me what is said in verse 8. He says, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Now, I think it is, it's noteworthy that the king himself here, who was Josiah, is left out of this punishment. Notice again what is said. It is the king's sons. It's all the officials who will be punished. And this, this makes sense because, of course, Josiah, we know, was a good king. He followed the Lord. He did his best in order to bring about a, a lasting reform among the people of Judah. When he heard the Word of God, when he heard the law read, he repented knowing that the nation was under the curses of the law. And so God honors His repentance. And the punishment will not come upon Him, but it will come upon His sons and the officials of the royal house who did not have the heart of Josiah, who remained in their wickedness. They were not a people who were devoted to God. In fact, they are described as those who array themselves in foreign attire. They were more concerned about having their, their relationships, their, their allied relationships with these other nations. And of course, when they entered into these relationships with the nations, they, they adopted all of their beliefs and their practices, their their love for wearing these garments was an expression that they had adopted the ways of the nations. We know as well from other prophets that these government officials were notorious for perverting justice for the sake of money. Micah chapter 3, verse 11 says of all the heads of Judah that they give judgment for a bribe. The governors, in other words, throughout Judah were not concerned in righteous governing. They didn't care about actual justice. They were only interested in money and in power and in using government to line their pockets. And God says that He will punish all of them because of this. It does not matter how powerful those in government believe themselves to be. They will not go unpunished if they pervert the land by perverting justice. And this does not just speak to the nation of Judah. This goes for all ungodly rulers. There are, of course, plenty of people we could point out in our own day, among our own government. There are plenty of other nations whose entire governments are filled with corruption. And those leaders believe they will never be held 
to account. And God is saying here, He is making it very clear that this kind of perversion of justice will not go unpunished. He will either bring disaster in the very days of these reigning governors, or even worse, they will face His eternal wrath. God is a God of justice. And He demands that those who reflect His image by carrying out a rule in the land, He demands that they also carry out justice and He will hold them to account if they do not. But I want you to notice also here that God is not only singling out the corrupt government leaders, He is singling out corrupt religious leaders as well. He says in verse 9, On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Now, when you first hear this, you're probably wondering, what does that even mean? What is wrong with leaping over a threshold? We have thresholds all over the place. If we step over it, are we now in some sort of violation of God's Word? What is taking place? What this phrase is referring to is actually a pagan ritual practice that has its origins in the worship of the Philistine god Dagon. This particular god was portrayed as being half fish and half man, like the original merman. That's how Dagon was. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines who worshipped Dagon, they had warred against the people of Israel and they had taken the Ark of the Covenant of God from the tabernacle. This also was a sign of God's judgment against the people of Israel in that day. But the Philistines won the battles, and they took the ark with them, and they brought the ark back to Ashdod, and they set it up in the temple of their god Dagon. It's sort of like a, a prize of Dagon's victory. But the next day, some of the Philistines go into the temple of Dagon, and they find that his statue had fallen down on the ground before the ark. That's not good. That shows the sign that their God has, has stumbled or fallen in some way. So what do they have to do? They have to go in. They have to take their idol. They have to set the statue back up. So they do that on the first day. But then another night passes. And they come back to the temple a second day. Only this time they found his statue had fallen again and it had shattered in pieces. And his head and his hands were lying on the threshold of the temple. And then we're told in verse 5 of 1 Samuel 5, this is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. You see, this avoidance of stepping upon the threshold of the temple began 
as a superstitious ritual among the Philistines in particular. But what we find when we get to Zephaniah's day is that over time, these pagan rituals had been mixed together with the worship of the Lord. People entering into the house of God would leap over the threshold not because the law of God had commanded them to, not because there was some symbolic picture representing something that God had done for them in the past. No, it was because they had seen the other nations doing this very thing in the worship of their gods, and so they likewise adopted the practice. But it seemed good. It seemed reverent. This is how the Philistines honor the house of Dagon. This is also how we must honor the house of Yahweh. Furthermore, we find Zephaniah saying here that they filled their master's house, that is, the the house of the Lord, with violence and fraud or deceit. And We saw from last week just one of the many examples where violence filled the temple of God. The priest of the temple, of course, had mixed together the worship of Baal with the worship of the Lord. And in worshiping Baal, they offered their children as sacrifices. They filled the house of God with the blood of innocence. Zephaniah here is calling all of them out for their abominable practices. All of this was spearheaded by the very men who were supposed to be leading the people of God to obey His commands and to do righteousness and to worship Him and Him alone. The religious leaders, the ones who were entrusted by God and entrusted by the people to teach them sound doctrine and to teach them the Word of God were the very people leading the charge into idolatry. So God says, I will punish all of them. Friends, God's ways have not changed from this day either. We are told all throughout the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, that false teachers will always be among us. One of the ongoing battles that the church has to fight against is men. And now strangely, even women who use their positions of leadership, who use all of their religious credentials, if you will, who use the pulpit to distort and twist the Word of God. There are men who have used their positions to abuse people in a variety of ways. There are those who have mixed together the Gospel of Christ with all of the various beliefs of the world, the idols of the nations, and have fashioned another Christ altogether in their own image. 
I mean, we can look around at our own nation and see all of the moral perversity that is taking place outside of the church, but it's not just outside. It is those who claim to be preachers, to be pastors, to be those who are going to proclaim the Word of God who have now mixed together the moral perversity of the world into the church. Pastors wearing rainbow-colored robes in honor of pride. Celebrating Sodom and Gomorrah. Mixing together, yet again, the religion of the peoples with the religion of God. And God will hold all who do such things accountable. The Bible tells us that just as the religious leaders were punished in the days of Judah, so also will false teachers face a great judgment for leading people astray. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 speaks of such as these. And it says that, that of these false teachers, they are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. God will hold accountable all who pervert His Word and lead Others into that very same kind of idolatry. It is a great and weighty task to teach the Word of God because every idle word will be held accountable. And when there are those who simply take it and toss it aside and in the name of Jesus teach what is false, I do not even want to imagine what the punishment will be. This is a cause for great lamentation among us. A cause for great intercession. That we would pray to the God of mercy that He would strike down those hardened hearts and convert them. That they would turn from all their wicked ways and be those who would preach the true Gospel. That even if in God's sovereignty He chooses not to do that, they will be held accountable. Thirdly, we find also as God describes the judgment that is coming upon Judah, He says that it is coming against all indifferent sinners as well. He says in verse 12, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. And here there's an interesting phrase that is used. It literally says, that He will punish the men who are thickened or congealed on their dregs. And Zephaniah here is speaking of the process of making wine. And in this process, the fermented wine has to be poured from one vessel into 
another. If it ferments and then it just sits in a single vessel, it's just over time going to get hardened and all nasty and it's going to have a, a bitter taste and, and, and perhaps even far too sweet. You just don't leave it sitting there. It's undrinkable. It's unusable. And the idea here is that these thickened men of Judah are those who have essentially been sitting in their apostasy and unbelief for so long that they've become now utterly worthless. They've become callous to the things of God. They don't really care at all about what the Lord thinks. Nothing will happen to them either way. Verse 12 goes on to say that they are those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will He do evil. He will do nothing. Though they may still participate in religious worship, though they may do religious works, it's all now just a matter of routine. It's tradition. It's just something your parents did. They live however, practically in their lives, basically like atheists. As though there were no God at all. And to these also, God says, I will punish them. And that punishment is what is then described in verses 10 to 11 and and also in verse 13. The Lord describes all of these different sections here of Jerusalem. The the fish gate and the second quarter, likely part of the the northern side of Jerusalem. The the part of Jerusalem which would have been attacked first from an invading army. He speaks of the mortar, which was a, a marketplace that was used for common trade. And he tells all of these places in Jerusalem to wail and to cry out. Why? Because there is a loud crash from the hills that is coming. There is an approaching army who in verse 13 will plunder their goods, will lay waste their houses, and will plunder their vineyards. The Lord, of course, is speaking about the Babylonian Empire that He was raised in up that would eventually destroy the very nation that He had warned about for hundreds of years. He is telling them that they will be the instrument of His judgments. And just as He had said long ago through Moses in the curses of the law, Deuteronomy 28, verse 32, Your sons and daughters shall be given to another people. Verse 33, A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors. Verse 36, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. Just as the Lord had said long ago through Moses, in the curses of the law, so was He now bringing these curses upon the people of Judah because of their sin. God would fulfill His Word. and He would cast them out of the land because they had forsaken Him and forsaken 
His law. The passage, of course, does not end with the day of the Lord bringing judgment against the nation of Judah alone. It returns as it had begun in verses 2 to 3 with the day of the Lord coming against the whole world. If you think about how the whole first chapter is organized, it's very much kind of like a sandwich. You can think about it in, in that way. Verses 2 and 3 begins with an announcement of a judgment against the whole world. The Lord's going to utterly sweep away everything on the earth. And then sort of the meat in between the sandwich is where He hones in on the nation of Judah and describes what will happen when the day of the Lord comes upon them. And then as the the other piece of the bread on the sandwich, He returns again and addresses the nations as a whole. It is not just Judah who is guilty, but it is the whole world because it is, in fact, we might say, from the world that Judah learned its idolatry. It embraced the sin of the world and brought it into the worship of God. And so God also pronounces a judgment against all mankind. And in verses 14-16, to the day of the Lord is pictured as God coming in the power and frightening terror of Mount Sinai. There is darkness and gloom. There are trumpet blasts and clouds. It reminds us also of the the great plagues that were sent against the the nation of Egypt, the plague of darkness in particular. This day of the Lord will bring wrath and destruction. And we find in verses 17-18 to that it will be the kind of destruction that is on a global scale. And it will be in the likeness of what came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. This is one of the things that we saw last week and it continues throughout the whole book of Zephaniah. This this idea that what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah is what God is bringing upon the whole world. Notice in verse 17, God says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Sinful man is being swept away not as an act of injustice on God's part, but as an act of justice because they have sinned. God's Judgments, when they come, they come upon the world as the necessary and righteous response to evil. And when they come, there is nothing that can save from them. Verse 18 says, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of His jealousy, All the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. We see that the Lord's fiery judgments will come suddenly. They will come without a moment's notice. It's as Peter said in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, 
He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's as the Apostle Paul likewise said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. He said, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When God's judgments, friends, come upon the world, it will not then be the time to make preparation. It will not be the time then to pursue mercy and grace. There will be no time to mend your ways. His judgment will bring an end to the earth as it now is, and it will wipe away all ungodliness, all sin, and all death from all the land. Now the point, the point in Zephaniah proclaiming these judgments point in all of this is made clear from the Word of God. God does not tell us of coming days of judgment so that we would simply just throw our hands up in the air in utter hopelessness and despair. He is not telling us these things so that we would not respond in any particular ways. We will look at this in more detail when we get to chapter 2 the week after next, but it's worth stating even now that these warnings, these judgments that are being proclaimed are told to us for a reason. They were told to the nation of Judah for a reason. Again, if you think about the days of Josiah, when Josiah heard the curses of the law and realized that the nation was under the curse, what did he do? He repented. In dust and ashes, he tore his garments. He rended his heart. He knew that God was also full of steadfast love, full of patience. He repented and He led the nation to repent. And this is the very same intention here. Warnings are given as a caution so that you would not fall into the very thing that is being warned about. Someone is standing on some train tracks and there is a train that is fast, quickly heading towards them and I yell out, get off the tracks because a train is coming. It is not so that they would stand there, freeze up, and watch as the train approaches. The purpose of the warning is to get them to jump off of the tracks as quickly as possible. It's to get your attention and to cause you to flee from the very thing that will bring certain death. 
And in the same way, these warnings that were told to the people of Judah long ago and that were announced even to the world are intended to provoke within all of us the right response. The warnings are given to us so that we also might repent. That we would hear of the wrath that is coming Before the day comes like a thief in the night, God patiently, generation after generation, warns us so that we would repent and turn to Him and so be saved from the wrath that is to come. Indeed, the Apostle Paul in that very same passage where he speaks of the coming day of the Lord, he he says to the Christians in Thessalonica, he says, but But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. And what he means by this, of course, is that they have now become children of light by virtue of joining themselves to the King of light by faith. These Thessalonican believers had repented of their sins. They had turned from their idolatry. They had destroyed all of their idols. And they trusted in Christ as their Savior. And so, as Paul says, they had no need to fear the day of the Lord coming upon them. And it is the same for all of us as well, friends. God patiently calls us while it is still day to repent of our sin. His Word shines a light on our darkened hearts, not solely that we may move into despair and say that we are undone and do nothing about it. No, He shines the light into our hearts so that we might turn to Christ and become, as Paul says, children of light. Because it is the case that if you step into the light of the Son of God as His light shines upon you, you also will become light. As that day is fast approaching, Though it may seem as if there has been a long delay. You can remember, Peter even brings this very point up in 2 Peter. All things seem to be going on as they always have been. Though it seems as if there is a long delay, the day is near. The warning is that it may not come upon us like a thief in the night, but as we hear of what is coming upon the world, we are to respond rightly. That right response is to turn from your sin and to trust in Christ. Friends, that's also, let me end by saying this, that is also an instruction, not only for those who do not know the Lord, but for those who do. We are still to be a people who throughout our lives are daily repenting from our sins. Because if we begin to live lives where we are embracing sin, where we are indifferent to sin, 
what we will inevitably prove is that we are a people who have never known God. Because the grace of God transformed the people of God. And so this is for all of us. We are to hear these warnings and to repent if we know Christ and to repent especially if we don't know Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Father, we see throughout Your Word decade after decade and century after century where You sent Your prophets to proclaim Your Word to Your people. They no doubt prophesied about great days to come where the Messiah would enter into the world, where where the world would be given a Son upon upon whose shoulders would, would the government be, would all the nations be. The prophets proclaimed a day to come when all of the nations would stream to Jerusalem where they would bow the knee before King Jesus. But they also gave many warnings. Warnings to your people then and warnings to people far off. That a day of the Lord is coming that is full of darkness and gloom. A day where you execute your vengeance against sin. And so Lord, I pray for all of us here. That as the Apostle Paul says, we we would not be those who are surprised by its coming. But we would be those who are children of the light, who walk in the day, who walk in righteousness, who turn from our sin and trust in Christ. Lord, that You would search our hearts and reveal all remaining sin that is there so that we might turn from it and be prepared be spotless and blameless on the day when we stand before You. We ask for Your mercy to be poured out upon us this day. And we pray in Jesus' name.